folks, uh, yeah, we're off the radio now. Um, we talked about this on Left Reckoning yesterday, which the recording is going to be played tomorrow. But what value did that did did Tim Kaine's saying that bring? I mean, even if you're just thinking politically, like, why would you do that? Well, it made the lobbyist happy, I'm sure. Uh, and, and I'm I'm presuming it kept to you know he he we cut it off there right as he was explaining that Amazon was uh, relocating to Northern Virginia, and you know that's that's something we recognize quite well here in Alabama, uh, where political leadership just begs and and gets on their hands and knees really uh, yeah. to beg corporations to relocate to the state and they throw out every subsidy known to man to get them to come here uh and then here you know i guess you're going to go in front of congress in front of the world to take up for them as you've just listened to testimony from their own workers on how the working conditions really are and how the company despite getting all these federal dollars and these contracts continues to flagrantly ignore the law it's so it's just silly like the tone policing he took right. issue he took issue with the president the international president of the teamsters saying that they're an organized criminal syndicate which like i don't i don't care frank i mean i think it would it would i think the definition matches if we're going to say organized an organized criminal criminal syndicate. What is that? An organized criminal syndicate would be something that does crime in an organized way as a business model. And that's how that's how they do their business model is they break labor law, they break OSHA standards as a business model. They pay people millions of dollars, thousands of dollars an hour to break the law. Right. I mean I don't care if you use the word organized crime syndicate, but good grief, tone policing workers who are telling you their experiences um, and telling you the facts that he doesn't even dispute about the way that Amazon conducts their business is just silly. It is it is politically impotent. And that and that was the Democrats running mate in 2016. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it, I, I mean, so, like as someone unions, in our comments said, it shows how much of a corporate Democrat he really is. Uh, yeah. I mean, not that we needed any more evidence, but it's there. And uh, someone else mentioned how sparsely attended that hearing was. And, and I agree there were there was just a handful of senators that even showed up to this. Right. And then you've got one of them is Lindsey Graham whining and crying. And the other then you got Tim Kaine up there. Uh, trying to do this centrist both sides kind of thing and take up for management, take up for Amazon. Yeah, it's it's pretty disgusting. And, uh, you know, I'm thankful that Senator Sanders mm-hmm. is the chair of that committee and is at least able to do things like this. Uh, right. But he obviously doesn't have a lot of help. Yeah. And and I mean, I to be fair to Tim, he the rest of everything outside of that clip is actually – Pretty good. He does really good messaging on the Pro Act. He 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 attacks some right wing characterizations of the Pro Act. He 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 explains why he supports the Pro Act. He explains why you know people should unionize and and you know all you know whatever. So the rest of it is good. But like, why would you preface 
Why would you prefer, preface a decent performance with that nonsense? Well, I think that's where he was speaking from the heart before he switched gears and went back into their standard right. talking points where he knows he's supposed to uh, throw us a bone rhetorically. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, well. All right. So um, so here's what here's what we've got in, in store. Um, we're off the radio now. Um Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for staying with us. I appreciate it. We've got a great overtime lined up for you. You can still call in, 844-899-TVLR. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. We're going to be talking to Yaffe about inflation. We're going to be talking about uh, some updates on the coal miner strike. We're going to be talking about Starbucks breaking the law and some more. We'll be taking your comments as well. So uh, stay tuned, and we will be right back. Alrighty, folks. Welcome back. You are still listening to the Valley Labor Report. This is Alabama's only union talk radio show. We are now in overtime. We've got some good stuff. We've got we've got good news finally <clears throat> on the Warrior Met coal strike. Um, really excited. Really excited about that. Uh, genuinely, <clears throat> genuinely, some of the most constructive and um, and material news, probably since the beginning of the strike, actually. Honestly, probably since the beginning of the strike, we've heard the best news in the last week. So really excited about that. Uh, and we've also got Yaffe. Yaffe is back. Yaffe's back on the program. Uh, so let's go ahead and, and get started. Yaffe, thanks for, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. I'm not hearing him, Adam. Uh, can you make sure that his do the um, turn uh, monitor off and then on again, maybe <clears throat> on the Zoom? Gotcha. That's what I did to the other thing. I can hear you guys. Hey, you hear there you are. We're I hear you. We're in business now. Yeah, we're in business now. All uh, right. Yeah, we're not. Uh, you know, not professionals. So occasionally we'll have some technical difficulties we appreciate your time though yeah thanks for joining us no problem glad to be here yep yep yeah so um before we get into the thing i wanted to talk to you about inflation because you said some you said some stuff about inflation that I, that i wanted to get some clarification on on your program but before we get to that um can you tell us this is your third time on the show now third time on the show have i ever um have i ever bitten you or <laughs> injured you in any way no, no, I don't think so. <laughs> no, no, I don't. I didn't think so either. I feel like I, I feel like I engage in a respectful way. W- wouldn't you think that, generally speaking? I mean, I think I can, I can make jokes and stuff, but, but I think I'm, I'm pretty, generally pretty easy to talk to. Yeah, 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 yeah. on the show. Just, you, you can be you can be vicious on Twitter, but that's normal. That is very true. Uh, I, this is Adam chiming in to say yes. I, I, I observed that as well. Um, but yeah, I, on the show, I will say that we always try to have constructive dialogue with people. We've you, we've had people that disagree with us, uh, and we try to you know we try to model yeah, good yeah. conversations, good dialogue. And and Yaffe, I will say that. Uh, every time you've been on this program, as much as we may disagree, you've always been very respectful and cool to talk to. And so, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a good thing that we're able to have respectful dialogue across pretty pretty extreme uh, political differences. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. I do think I I do think in my defense on Twitter, I think most of the time. It's a pretty tongue in cheek. I don't think. I don't think generally. I don't think. I. I don't think I would give off the the, the air that I'm. I'm gen, genuinely being hateful unless something really pisses me off. Well, most people on Twitter are pretty mean. So yeah, yeah, like... and you match the medium, right? You match the medium. Everybody. <laughs> yeah, I was about every... to say, when in Rome, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. Rome, right, right, right. Yeah, and, and so you know, one time I actually, I actually tweeted something that was that was totally a joke. I said something about. I was in somebody's article, and I won't name them because I don't want to embarrass them, but I was in somebody's article, and there were a bunch of other people in this person's article, and they tagged them on Twitter, but they didn't tag me. And it was just because, like, they ran out of room. Like, I don't I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. But I, I replied, and I said, um, like, censored, censored again or something like that, you know. And, and this dude calls me. And he's like, why are you trying to cause trouble for me, man? That's my employer that you're tweeting at right there. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, man. Like, calm down. It's, <laughs> it's a tweet. Like, chill out. So I think people can take Twitter a bit too seriously. But, yeah, so I asked that because um, I have asked Phil Williams to come on the show. And he has engaged with me on Twitter. But he's not he's he's not replied to any of my emails. And same thing with Brian Dawson from eighteen nineteen news, because I was interested in talking to Brian Dawson from eighteen nineteen news because he gave a total fluff interview to um Dean Odell, the flat earth pro military coup gubernatorial candidate, and like talked to him like he was a real like a like a like a real viable candidate who had real ideas and stuff like that um and and wasn't just a kook which to the credit of the people on WVNN at least y'all Y'all just like laughed him off the radio if you had him on at all. But, the, but yeah, Dale had him on, and, and Dean Odell will not come on again. <laughs> and that's that's that appropriate. Way. Like that's what you do when a flat earther runs for governor. I think if you if you platform him at all, you just laugh at them. But they had this guy on, and they didn't even mention that he thinks we need a military coup. It, that's, which is on his campaign website. He said that the he, on his campaign website for governor of Alabama, he's like the only way that we can the only way that we can uh, get a free society again is is for the military to take over and to like execute Joe Biden or something. And um and and he he also I did has not all, know that. I'll have to go look at that. <laughs> yes, yes, it's crazy. And and that he's flat. You know, his, his flat Earth stuff is all out there. They didn't mention any of that stuff. Like, they just talked to him about, like, normal things. Like, this is a normal person. And so I wanted to talk to him about that because 1819 News, you know, they they, they want to kind of portray themselves as like, oh, we just give you the straight dope, you know. And and that was that was pretty interesting to me. So, all right. Well, um, I appreciate the vote of confidence. Um, so, uh, the inflation stuff, you said, can you just explain um, – Explain to me like why like why you think why you think we have inflation right now. Well, it's a it's a multifaceted thing. Obviously, the Federal Reserve has kept interest rates artificially low for a long time. And so that's going to increase the money supply. They have increased the money supply 
But there is no doubt in the past two years under COVID, under Republicans and Democrats, they have completely blown out the spending. While at the same time, there has been supply chain issues and less productivity in in the market. So you have just throwing a bunch of cash everywhere. People have too much cash. But on the supply side, the supply side is less. And you also have deficits, the debt, and the Federal Reserve keeping interest rates are artificially low for so long. It was a recipe for the kind of inflation we're seeing. And they said a lot of it was transitory because they thought it was solely just supply chain issues, which ended up being wrong. I think a lot of this was entirely predictable. Mm-hmm. And so the what is what is the prescription to address that? Um, well, the Federal Reserve did raise interest rates. They're going to have to do that. So that is part of it. It's not going to be one time solution. I have been arguing for a supply side solution as well, where we add, where we deregulate, add some deregulation, possible tax rate cuts and opening the energy sector so we can get, you know, we want a strong dollar. So the Federal Reserve is going to try to do that, hopefully. I don't know if they're going to be strong enough. That's part of it. We also need spending cuts, control of spending in D.C. That's going to be part of it. But we also need to get the supply side moving. And anything we can do to encourage more productivity on the supply side so they can actually keep up with the demand since there's higher demand, I think will help as well. Yeah, so let the deregulation, tax cuts, and then there was a third thing. Uh, cutting spending, strong cutting dollar. Spending. Yeah. So the deregulation, how would – like what are the regulations that are standing in the way of producers right now, you think? Well, when you talk about the energy market, there is definitely some um, some regulations standing in the way preventing – and you know this – this is something that they wanted because they want to switch us to more green energy. So they have talked about they don't want to do open up as many leases before. They don't want to have a pipe, the Keystone XL pipeline. They don't want, and a lot of these things are done on the state level. There's other pipelines in state levels that have been blocked. Things have been held up in court. Anyway, we can kind of increase the productivity there so we can produce more energy here at home, I think will help. In terms of farming, I know there are some sugar regulations that encourage less producing of sugar. A lot of this is left over from the Great Depression because they wanted to keep prices high for sugar. Well, we need to find out ways to deregulate that so we can get more. I mean, right now, if we're going to have a food shortage, we need to figure out what regulations could get in the way of farmers producing more food. Those are just a couple examples, I think. But – I th- I think generally you you kind of like gestured to different areas of the economy and said we need to deregulate, but I, I'm not sure that and 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 just say, just say it again if I missed it, but I'm not sure that I actually heard like a thing like a like an actual an actual thing that that is standing in the way of producers producing. Um, well, in terms of um, the we we need to open up leases on energy production. Yes. We need to open up uh, leases uh, on energy production and that's Yeah. That's that's, that's part the regulation it, yeah. that you think that we need one of them, to, yeah. To, and we need to approve we definitely need to approve uh, the Keystone XL pipeline. 
I think. I, Jacob, I don't want to steal your thunder here, but I, yeah, I mean, I'm just going to say that I'm not sure how any of that necessarily means lower prices. Um, if inflation is about the rise of prices, I don't see how any of that addresses the fact that ultimately companies can charge whatever they want as far as the market will bear. And given that we're so dependent on oil as one example, but also the meat industry and other industries where we've seen record profits, we've seen where they are price gouging and ultimately nothing I'm not seeing and even from Democrats as well. I'm not seeing any proposals that actually addresses rising prices because uh, changing the interest rates doesn't necessarily do that. It does historically cause recessions. Hmm. Um, you know, deregulation. We could sure. I mean, I think there's there's opportunities to open up more oil extraction. Uh, you know, of course, that brings us closer to the apocalypse. <laughs> but uh, even separate from that, it does take time for that supply to actually hit the marketplace. But it still doesn't. It, it, there's no price controls. Um, there's no alternatives to the consumption, right? So, I mean, if if we're we're basically backs against the wall, the prices of essential goods and services continue to skyrocket quicker than wages. Um, but our, you know, we don't have the alternative of consuming less necessarily, uh, or consuming different alternatives. We don't have anything that's proposing price controls. Um, we, you know, are still unable to actually address some of the supply chain issues that are that are coming from uh, COVID, because China has determined they don't want to see a million of their people die from this virus, and so they are taking some, you know, pretty extreme measures. Uh, we could argue about whether it's worth it or not, but. You know, regardless, their supply chain issues as a result of COVID and COVID measures. So all these things are factoring together. But at the end of the day, you know, we can we can hear in these uh, board of director meetings that these companies recognize they can raise their prices. They can charge us more. And there's really nothing where we can do about it. And giving them more money through tax cuts or deregulations, I, I don't see how that gives them any incentive to to tamp down on runaway price inflation. Uh, in fact, I think it would probably do the opposite. So what I'm hearing just as a regular, not an economist, just a rank-and-file Alabama worker, I'm not hearing anyone in the political establishment tell me anything that's actually going to address inflation in terms of me paying more at the gas pump and me paying more at the grocery store, uh, I, I'm not hearing it. And and what I'm seeing, though, from what you just mentioned are is basically more of the same Reaganomics that we've been doing for 40 years. And what I'm hearing from the Fed is, oh, well, we're going to restrict the money supply by raising interest rates, which, oh, yeah, like seven out of eight times it did cause a recession. But just trust us this time we've got it under control. Um, and, and I've seen a lot of blame on wages. I've seen labor being blamed as if we're somehow part of the cause here, even though our, the wage increases that we're seeing 
across the board are not even keeping up with inflation. So I, I don't know. I, I'm not an economist, as I said. So some of this is frankly over my head. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm still not hearing anything from anybody that explains to me how prices are going to be reined in, how we will rein in the power of corporate America to charge us whatever the hell they want. And uh, I don't think even more fossil fuel extraction, destroying our natural habitat, uh, ruining our national parks and federal lands, uh, to pump more carbon in our atmosphere that brings us closer to literal civilization extinction level events. I, I just, I, you know, none of this seems like the answer to me. Uh, but that's my soapbox and I'll get off of it <laughs> and, and turn it back over to you guys. Yeah, I mean, what, what do you, you know, what is, because I, I think that that's, that's a lot of, because I, and, you know, I, I don't know. I have some kind of general, maybe general ideas, but I'm I'm not totally, you know, the inflation thing is, is, you know, a bit over my head as well. But that that is kind of the general critique that, that I have, because it seems to me that the idea coming from the right is that inflation is a um, is caused by too much money chasing too few goods and tax cut is going to tax cuts are a stimulative policy right they're a stimulative policy um you know they don't stimulate very much but it is a stimulative policy deregulation is you know it seems to me that the idea of deregulation is that you free up more resources for them to produce more but they have so much in profits that i'm not understanding how how they're one, incentivized to oh, yeah, more? a 1% cost decrease because of a deregulation, a deregu- uh, you know, a, a decrease in regulations is going to actually increase their production. Um, and so it, it, it's difficult for me to, for me to kind of wrap my head around. Yeah. Well, I mean, economics is always based on incentives and, what you when by freeing up, I think the supply side, like I said, especially with deregulation, it adds those incentives to produce more, I think. And you're saying, well, they're not going to really want to produce more because they're already having record profits. So they're just gouging customers. Not really sure I buy that. But anytime you free up the private sector, you know, you can talk about the big corporations. They're the ones. Yeah, you're right that they they are not hurt as much by inflation. But when you free up the entire private sector, you can add more competition. And it's really competition, small businesses, other producers out there that are going to uh, help them more accountable, uh, make them more accountable. And anything we can do to increase um, not only competition, but just incentives, because it is their business to want to sell goods and services. And eventually, they're not going to be able to just keep high, having high prices. The market's going to change. So they're not just thinking about now, but they're also going to think about the future. And I don't think it's in their future economic interest to just keep prices high and price a lot of people out of the market. They're, they're going to want to find ways to, um, to get more of their product to customers. And I think anything we can do on the regulation side to help speed up that process, I think is a good thing based on incentives. Any ways we can incentivize them to do that 
is a good thing. And I'm not really a big fan of going down the price control route because that seems to have perverse incentives, I think. And especially. No, you go ahead. No, you go ahead. That was basically my main point. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. well, Jacob, real quick, I just want to say something that I heard that I think we probably uh, uh, agree on is the monopoly. uh, Because, Yaffe, I agree with you that the large the large private sector industries, your Amazons, your Walmarts, uh, you know, BP Oil, these these companies are not facing the same kind of economy that small to mid-sized businesses face. Um, you know, so while we disagree on, on, on much there, there is something to that. And I think that's where, you know, I'm coming from and, and is that part of the reason we have an inflation crisis right now, it's not so much about, you know, government spending uh, or regulations. It's about the growth of monopoly power, where so much of our economy is concentrated into just a handful of corporations. Uh, When you have Tyson dominating the meat industry and you have Amazon and Walmart dominating their industries, they have a power that is unchecked. And, you know, I, and so I know price controls is something that's that's been done in the past. It, I agree that it has its downfalls because ultimately you can start to see capital go on strike. Uh, capital has its own class consciousness, uh, oftentimes more so than us working class people. And they're yeah. certainly willing to organize and refuse to invest. Um I mean, hell, the last few decades, there's been a lot of that where money is not being reinvested into production. It's just going into fake economies, whether that's stock market speculation, crypto, NFTs, uh, Silicon Valley companies that really never profit, but somehow have, you know, massive stock volumes. So, you know, again, the, the monopoly power is a key here when we're talking about inflation. Um and the Fed is not up to the task of checking monopoly power. Um, I would argue that the you know the Reaganomics that you're discussing is not up to the task of, of dealing with monopoly power. If, if anything, I think that led us to where we're at with that. Um, so well, that's the, that's the, that's what I'm thinking you on know. the oil stuff, like. I mean, aren't there? And and I know that there's. I know that there's a conservative rebuttal, and and you're not to this, and you're not supposed to ask questions you don't know the answer to. But but I can't. I can't recall it. I recall not being satisfied. But isn't there something like nine thousand oil leases that are not being used right now, and like oil companies are seeing record profit? Like, why is there not an incentive to use the leases that they have right now, or to increase production in the places that? they're already at as opposed to just giving shareholders more money. Yeah. And the, that was something that the Biden administration had said, there are some leases right now. Now I will say some of those leases had been held up in court for environmental reasons, which is a whole nother subject. But in terms of there are some that they are using, but if there is an incentive in the future that there's going to be more regulation down the road to prevent them from exploring those, they're not going to invest the money in that. So it, there has to be a, a complete economic policy 
in terms of we're going to allow you to explore as much as possible. And they're going to want to invest their money to do that. Now, there was you're right. There was another reason for that. And I can't recall it either specifically on the oil leases, but it had it had something to do with. um, uh, I, I believe it had something to do with it being held up. In, in certain other areas. Hmm. But, um, well, it yeah, just, I think I mean, over- it just seems to me, I mean, it's, it just seems to me that. I mean, basically I, what I, you're saying is that the oil companies are, are loving this. They're price gouging. They don't want well, to. Yeah. I mean, there's one Conoco Phillips had a profit increase of 1400%. Like one thousand four hundred percent. So you know, like they could with, with that much increased profits, they could have gas maybe five cents a gallon less than all their other competitors. And you know, it seems like that would be an incentive that would be there. But instead, they they just they just have those profits instead. Well, and I, I just I'm sorry, but as someone who is aware that climate change is putting us down a path of existential threat, I don't think we need to do anything to incentivize more drilling and more extraction because that means more death and more chaos. And I know that's not a popular thing to say because right now we're all feeling the pinch at the gas pump. Um, but, I, you know, in my view, I don't see why the oil industry even has a right to exist Uh, It is a national security threat. What they are doing, the carbon that is being pumped into our atmosphere is a a security threat, not just for the United States of America, but for literally every human on this planet, all living species on this planet. The science is very, very clear about that. So, you know, while price controls, maybe that's not the most ideal option. But, hell, what if we actually nationalized the energy sector so that we could do what we have to do in this transitional phase to make sure folks have the fuel they need uh, for the economy to be going in the right direction. But uh, we absolutely do need green energy, not just not now, like years ago, like yesterday. Um, And so uh, and we're getting I know we're getting kind of deep on on the oil factor because it's it's not just oil. Prices are rising everywhere. uh, And it's not just due to fossil fuel costs. I mean, the meat industry is a great example where monopoly power has an ability to, you know, jack up the prices. And what are we going to do about it? Uh, So that I mean, that's that's really what's what bothers me is I don't see any program from any direction, really, that is explaining how we rein in these prices. Uh, And, you know, I just. And this is where we're going to disagree. I just am never going to accept that more drilling and more uh, destruction of our environment for the temporary, you know, use of fossil fuels is going to be worth it in the long run. Uh, Because I I feel like our grandchildren and their children are going to look back and wonder what in the hell we were doing. Um. Well, it, one thing I will say is it does seem like you admit that there are incentives out there to prevent more en- more fossil fuel exploration. Not enough, which frankly. In the, 
Yeah, I think, well, I think he was just saying his opinion. I think that, you know, I, I don't think that there's a, ever been an actual taking back of the ability, uh, of the ability once it's given. I mean, I don't, I don't think that anybody has ever pointed to any well that Biden has shut down or any lease that Biden has shut down. I mean, all, everything that was open under the Trump administration is open now or can be open now. Um, and, and there's there's some production that just simply isn't happening right now uh, that, that, you know, the, we, we still don't have the production levels, not because there are new regulations, but because they're just they're just choosing not to produce um, even in America. I mean, is, um, right. Well, Isn't that right. Like, are there places that, that were pumping oil under the Trump administration that aren't anymore? Because well, when you, when you talk about supply and demand, and I have to admit, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but there there were, when you talk about future leases, those were shut down. And you're right. Some of that is because during COVID, there was such a glut, you know, it was the opposite. There was so mm-hmm. much supply because everyone was at home that, you know, they didn't have to do it. So they're, they're going to have to catch up. And I think they will catch up in some ways. But it, when you have an administration that immediately when they get there and they say, we're not going to offer any new leases, we're, we're going to have a moratorium on those kind of leases, we're going to have a moratorium on pipelines, we're going to have a moratorium on whatever, they're not going to they're going to be reluctant to invest in any kind of new exploration because they kind of see the writing on the wall. And in, in that way, it kind of disincentivized them to say, okay, we're just going to take our profits and right now and just raise prices. And I would rather have some kind of incentive that at least gets some of them to say, okay, we need to look at this future exploration because we need to get the supply up because the, that's the main way you lower prices is you have more and more supply. And I mean, this is that's like a long term fix. And if and if, you know, we are if we're because that's not going to there's there's nothing that that is that that's going to fix the fix the thing short term. And so if we're if if you're talking long term solutions, I'm talking long term solutions. I think both of us are are amicable to like nuclear energy. Why would we not be doing something like that, which is is going to be less of a or, or not a driver of climate change and actually provides cheaper electricity than 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 gas or oil like why would why why is it that we want to incentivize more exploration instead of incentivizing more nuclear energy or um, or or wind and solar well, if you, if you want to talk about nuclear energy, I'm with you 100%. I mean, if we can find ways to incentivize incentivize more nuclear energy, because you're right, there are zero emissions with mm-hmm. that. I mean, you want to talk about clean energy, you could have possibly other ramifications in terms of nuclear waste that we could talk about. I think a lot of that, um, the dangers of that has been exaggerated. I think a lot of the so-called dangers of a meltdown have really been exaggerated. It can be made in a much safer way. I would love for us to go towards more nuclear energy. And if that's part of the policy prescription, I'm on board. But I I haven't seen that either. And in terms of short term and long term, a lot of times when you immediately open up supply, yes, it's a long term thing, but it's also short term. It's also going to be priced in now because because when you look when you look at prices, they're going to see future supply coming on and that's going to be 
uh, put in their decision when it's traded on the open market. Well, can I, I'm going to throw something out here that we've, we've not addressed, uh, which is foreign policy, which plays a big role here. Um, you know, we have countries such as Venezuela and Iran that are oil producing countries, which have been subject to very harsh sanctions regimes. Uh, those could be negotiated out, right? Those could be ended. Uh, those, those could be uh, new producers available for the marketplace. Um, we had an Iran nuclear deal that was uh, ripped up by the previous president. And Venezuela, I've heard some you know, talk that maybe there's going to be some uh, thawing of relations with Venezuela due to this uh, energy mm-hmm. crisis. Uh, and the other piece of it, of course, is we have a proxy war with Russia happening in Europe. And that's obviously having a major impact on prices across the board, but specifically with oil and gas. And there's nothing, it's not like written in the Bible that we have to have these sanctions. Uh, It's not, you know, it's very possible that the United States as the largest uh, economy, as the uh, most powerful country on earth, the most wealthy country on earth, could actually use its power and influence to try to negotiate peace and diplomacy. Um, but it appears that that's not really on the table. And I think that's a failure of the White House and a failure of NATO. Um, of course, that's not to deflect blame from, from Putin and the Russian invasion. They have committed an illegal invasion, uh, an illegal war. Um, and so it's not that, you know, we should be okay with that, but, the United States response to try to strangle Russia and the Russian economy absolutely is having an impact on inflation and on the fuel supply. And um, the United States response to funnel tens of billions of dollars in weapons that are going to be largely unaccounted for uh, over into Eastern Europe really is poised to prolong this conflict. And it's just it's a, it's a shame. Uh, it's a shame because. When we have wars like this, it's ordinary, regular people, men, women, and children who bear the brunt of it, while politicians and generals can comfortably uh, make these decisions, and while the military-industrial complex can can profit uh, in an obscene manner off this death and destruction. So, you know, that's kind of the elephant in the room, I think, is is that there's a foreign policy regime here of American imperialism which is undergirding all of this. Well, when you talk about, I mean, there are many different aspects. I mean, if we open up to Iran, what does that mean for Iran's military power? That's what they're going to use the money for. But also, they're I mean, in they'll never have the Saudi military with. we have. We, you know, True. I, I'm not personally, if Iran spends more on the military, that doesn't bother me. Uh, they have a right to have a military to the extent that any government sh- has the right to exist. Um, why wouldn't they spend money on their military given the way they've been treated? Uh, we overthrew their government in 1953, a democratic government. The CIA and MI6 came in. They right. overthrew that government uh, and installed a dictator who reigned with a bloody fist for over two decades there uh, with secret police trained by the CIA. And it's no surprise that ultimately 
it backfired in our face with the Islamic Revolution in 79. Uh, but, you know, in, in all these situations where we name these countries that are supposedly bad guys, that are supposed to be our enemies, um, you, I mean, it's, it's worth digging deeper to see, well, why do they have a problem with America? Is it just because, you know, they don't like the way we talk, they don't like the way we look, they don't like our flags and our freedom, and, you know, that's the, the surface level sort of response we have, but then you dig a little deeper and realize, you know what, if someone overthrew my government, I'd feel some type of way about that. <laughs> That's just me. But, you know, so I'm not personally, you know, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry to cut you off. I just get really, you know, fired up about about this in particular, um, because I don't have a problem with the Iranian people. And, I, you know, the Iranian government sucks, as do most governments, uh, and it has its its. Uh, blood on on its hands uh but iran is an oil producing country there's nothing that on a practical matter stops us as a country from negotiating with iran uh to end these sanctions to put bring them back into the marketplace beyond our fears that yes their power and influence would grow in the middle east and you know that's something that Evidently, the United States is unwilling to do, is unwilling to see any sort of alternatives or any other powers grow uh, around the world, even halfway across the world. Yeah, and you could talk about our dependence on foreign oil in general. You could talk about foreign policy. You could talk about, yeah, the Russian uh, war has definitely caused an increase of prices. And, you know, if we, you know, if we just don't give the Ukrainians a military aid, well, then basically there's a chance that the Russians are just going to win. And are we willing to accept something like that in Europe? That That is all a deep discussion we could definitely have. But overall, I think then if we're talking once again about finding ways to increase supply, I think the better solution would be find ways to increase energy supply here. And I will say Jacob made a good point that you know, it should not just be focused on oil. It mm-hmm. should be focused on natural gas. It should be focused on nuclear energy. But there are times where there are strict environmentalist groups who fight very hard against both natural gas and, nu- and nuclear energy, which have far fewer carbon emissions than coal and oil. So I, w- I would much rather open it up as much as we can here in the U.S. so we're not having to be dependent on supplies from foreign countries. Yeah. I mean, it's oil always traded on a world market. So I'm not one who likes to use the word energy independent because the the fact is the world market will affect it. But if we can have supply here and increase supply here in different areas, that's going to have a much more impact on the world market than if we free it up in other countries, I think. But I think in the, in the immediate term, wouldn't it, wouldn't the the as far as everything that you're talking about, the quickest thing would be to re- remove sanctions on like uh, Venezuela and Iran and, and and begin importing their oil, wouldn't it? Well, I, I will say I'm not sure about that just because Iran is enemies with Saudi Arabia and hmm. Saudi Arabia is still <laughs> a big, a major importer of, of ours. So if we start getting it from Iran, there's a chance Saudi Arabia is going to be very pissed off. And, and it's these kind of things where. That's why it becomes very, very dangerous where I agree with you guys that being dependent on these foreign countries and foreign policy gets very complicated. And so you you could release sanctions 
on Iran, get it from Iran, get it from Venezuela. But that causes other problems from other countries where we get other goods. So and that's that's fair. That's definitely yeah. fair. And I think yeah. I mean, I think that France has a really good energy. Like, I mean, they're like almost 100 percent of their energy is from nuclear, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I agree with that completely. I think we have really dropped the ball because the amount of energy we could get cheaply and cleanly from nuclear energy far surpasses any other kind of energy. And I would be all in favor of that for many different reasons. Yeah. 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 I think I think that would that would be the you know, I think that there are some drawbacks, but but I think like I, I think I've I've been more or less convinced that nuclear um, can be built safely at at this point if it's done either with an extreme amount of government o- oversight or like by the government. I don't know that I would trust like a company to do it. But, um, but well, there would definitely need to be some regulations involved, and I think I think there already are. But the regulations have gotten so to the point, a lot of it's on the local level where people have just been scared to death by different for different reasons of nuclear energy that anytime it's brought up, it's just, you know, people are scared of it. Yeah. So the I think my prescription to attack inflation would be to pull money out of the money supply by taxing rich people um, and giving the money back to working people. And increasing investment in nuclear energy and removing sanctions. I think that's I think that's what we've agreed on. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> nice try. Nice try. That's good. Okay. All right. All right. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Yeah. This wasn't the, and this and and I have much less um, firm opinions on on inflation, what to do about it. So that's why I was I was spending a lot of time listening uh, as opposed to normally where I I have. Uh, very strong opinions about things. So I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for inviting me guys. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Yeah. So, um, the, like I opened up overtime with, um, we had some good news come out for the first time in like a year. And I mean the, the whole strike, I think this is actually, this is genuinely the most material news that we've seen. Um, and that is the statement from BlackRock, um, which is the primary investor in um, in Warrior Met Cole, saying that uh, that they believe that the strike should end, which is a big deal. You get you get the you, you know the CEO of BlackRock coming down and 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 start putting some pressure on Warrior Met. You're going to have some serious serious uh, stuff like that that that's some serious pressure and that um I think as much as anything else this is hopefully the beginning of the end for the strike um they said in their statement that prolonged operational disruptions such as labor disputes can have a negative impact on a company's financial performance and business resilience we believe it is in the best economic interest of our clients for warrior met coal and the umwa to reach a resolution not only that though not only are they calling now for a resolution to be reached uh, between Warrior Met and the UMWA, they call out some of the fi- uh, some of the financial decisions that the executive board of Warrior Met made. Listen to this: We don't believe key executives should be rewarded. 
when the company has been impacted by negative, negatively by the ongoing labor dispute and has related uh, and related fall in production, which has meant it has not been able to take advantage of favorable market conditions and maximize long-term value. This is investors speak for uh, you freaking dumbass. Why are you taking million-dollar bonuses while your production has been down? What are you doing, man? Because for the last year, steel has been steel has been um, more profitable than it has in the last decade or more. The price of steel has gone through the roof, and because of Warrior Met's obstinate obstinate negotiating with the UMWA, they have not been able to take full advantage of this opportunity. They have lost a potential billion dollars in revenue because of idled production, because they are only running at like something like 20-30% capacity. If they were running at 100% capacity, if they were increasing capacity because they were bringing more people into Warrior Met and therefore into the union, it could even be more than a billion dollars of revenue. But they lost out on a billion dollars of revenue, which would have not only gone to the workers, it would have also gone into the business. They could have invested it. Um, They could have, hell, they could have even given it to themselves. But instead of that, they have chosen a path of keeping these folks out of work for a whole year, and they're rewarding themselves with inordinate bonuses. The UMWA put out a statement on this saying, when even the giant Wall Street firms that own your company say enough is enough, it's time to end the strike. The workers, families, and communities Warrior Met continues to hold hostage by needlessly prolonging this ordeal need to get back to a sense of normalcy, and the company needs to get back to full production with an, in- with an experienced workforce. Especially at this time of unprecedented coal prices. Let's settle this now. And that's, exa- I mean, that's exactly right. There's... You know, we were just talking with Yaffe about incentives. The capitalist incentive, if it was just profit, if it was just about profit, they would have given these folks what they wanted and they would have given them more, frankly. Anything that it took to get them back in the mines, that's what they would have done. If they were only motivated by profit, that's what they would have done. But they're not only motivated by profit. Right, right. They're not only motivated by profit. They are also motivated by greed, and they are motivated by their power-hungry insistence that they have total dictatorial control over the people that they have in their employ. Those are other incentives that... People don't like to talk about. Those are the other incentives, the other incentives that are at play that people don't want to talk about. Because it's clear, it's clear because of the price of coal, uh, because of what they're asking for. Now, it would be one thing if their negotiating position was um, give us ownership of the company or we walk. Now that's a position that I would support. <laughs> but that's you know I frankly, 
the the idea of property rights in this country that uh, anybody who um, the, the, <laughs> the idea that that because you happen to own a because you happen to own the business is it gives you total right to continue owning the thing and continue profiting. It just doesn't make any sense to me. These people, they don't live in Alabama. They have never been in a coal mine. They, uh, they, they just sit up in New York trading stocks, in D.C. trading stocks, in Australia trading stocks. Why do they get to decide what happens in Alabama, in an Alabama coal mine? Just because they have billions of dollars? That's absurd. It's absurd. So, um, but this is this is very good. Uh, uh, this is this is this is good news because maybe BlackRock is is a little bit more purely motivated by profit, and maybe the the people at Warrior Met have a little bit more of the greed and, and power stuff uh, going on. So um, let's hope for a resolution in the near term on that. Very yeah, good news. hoping so. So another thing that happened with the UMWA last week that was not as unambiguously good was that they endorsed tim james um and they endorsed tim james likely because of stuff like this adam let's let's play that clip uh from his rally with the with the coal miners we need to always be grateful to the people who help us pull the natural resources from the ground now you're not going to get me in a tube that goes down 2,000 feet. I can't do it. I can't. I'm just, I guess, I I don't even like elevators. That's why I will always be supportive of our miners and energy workers who have the knowledge and the skill to reach that goal. I love this culture the mining culture, generations, generation after generation of men and women who do this work, and we've got to protect it any way that we can. I was, I've been concerned about this strike. Been going on for over a year. They tell me, I think it's the oldest one in Alabama ever. Is that right? It's affecting about 900 miners and their families, and it continues to be unnecessarily hurt families in this state. Look, I believe in free enterprise. I believe in fair collective bargaining. But the owner of this mine, Warrior Met Coal, and their principal partner, BlackRock, The largest private equity company in the world obviously do not share my belief in fairness. Their website says, we want to provide for our employees with highly attractive compensation, yet their tactics tell a different story. They're requiring, and I'm telling y'all, when people hear this, steam's going to come out of their ears. It's so wrong. They're requiring that Alabama miners agree to be terminated if they miss four work days for any reason. Any reason. That's right. If you get COVID, pneumonia, you're out of work for four days, they want to fire you. 
at the same time, they are making record profits. Now, I've got no problem with profits. I like profits. That's what, that's what it's about. But fairness is in order. This is unadulterated greed and corporate bullying on a scale that I have never seen in my life. About 900, 900, think about how many families that is. 900 families are hurting out of work because they will not acquiesce to Warrior Met and Black Rock's unfair and offensive demands. I don't blame them. I wouldn't either. Union or no union, it's inexcusable. This strike needs to end now, and the Alabama miners must go back to work. That's all I'm going to say on that today. But if it doesn't get better, there'll be another day to talk about this. Yeah, so that's the... um and you know that was that that was pretty good. That was some good rhetoric. Uh, those were some good words, and um, you know, so I I don't want to be too um, I you know I I understand that they're in a more difficult situation materially than I've ever been in, and hope to ever to ever be in. Um, I really hope that I'm never in a situation where I'm, where I have to be on strike for 13 months. That would be really difficult. Um, and, and I, and, and, you know, once you start getting to that, once you start getting there, um, once you start getting there, you have to, um, you know, you start kind of grasping at straws and, and, Tim James has said a lot of the correct things. Um, he said he's going to immediately stop the use of state troopers. He said that he is going to fight the injunctions. He said that he's going to use the office of the governor to attempt to mediate the strike in a way that, um, you know, in a way that uh, uh, governors throughout the United States history um, have done in a way that Secretary of Labor Marty Walsh did with the Kellogg strike. You know, that's something that he said he's going to do. And and so that's good. And I, I hope he does that. His father's history would not lead us to believe that he's going to do that um, because of what his father did to the paper mill strikers in 1980. So there's cause for concern there. There's There's cause to doubt, as there always is with any politician. Uh, but certainly the current governor isn't doing anything on this issue. And, and Lou Burdett has said some similar things, uh, but I don't, he is, I, I talked to his campaign manager the other day and I asked him if he had gotten an invitation to, or I asked him if he, if he interviewed, if Lou Burdett interviewed for the endorsement and he said he didn't, he said that they, he said they didn't get a letter. Now, the people that I've talked to in the mine workers said that they sent a letter to every candidate. So 
I don't know if Lou Burdett just missed it or if it went to the wrong address or if maybe the only person that they actually engaged is Tim James. I, I mean, I really don't know. But for whatever reason, I think Tim James was the only person to interview. And, I mean, you know, to be fair, uh, unions make endorsements like all the time. And if you wanted to make this an issue... Luberdet could have proactively gone after the miners endorsement. You know, he you don't have to, you know, you don't here's here is a tip, a pro tip, pro tip to future politicians. You don't have to wait on a on a gold-plated letter of invitation to support workers. There's a tip. Right. Uh but Tim James was apparently the only person who interviewed for the endorsement, and he said a lot of good things. So it's, uh, you know, it's not unreasonable. It is not, um, I don't think it's beyond the pale. I don't think the endorsement itself is beyond the pale. Um, and that's and that's what I would say as far as that, because on any other issue, he's going to be basically the same as any other Republican. So if he can if he can convincingly make the argument that he is going to be better for the coal miners on that issue, and he's going to be basically the same on the other issues, then it makes sense to endorse him, right? Makes sense. It you know it's it's not unreasonable, right? I'd never vote for him. Would never give him my money, but I do understand the rationale there. Yes, um, like you said, he's essentially the only one who has really tried hard to uh, stake out a position and, and get that endorsement and. You know, given the gravity of the strike and, and the duration of the strike, the UMWA members probably are going to be single issue voters. And then this is a mm-hmm. situation where you can't really begrudge someone right. for being a single issue <laughs> yeah, voter. No kidding. Now, you know, I don't know what the polling would look like if you polled all 900 plus members rank and file and just see how they felt about it. You know, that'd be that'd be interesting to see. But um yeah, I, I agree. I, I I can understand the endorsement. I, yeah. I can. I can understand the endorsement, but what <clears throat> I what I can't understand, and what really really hurt me deeply as a union member, as an officer of the AFL CIO, as somebody who sees these people as my sisters and brothers as an advocate on for these people on these specific issues as somebody who spent an entire weekend down there raising money for them this this hurt me deeply and I cannot understand it Adam let's play that clip but here's what Kay has done for our kids she let mask mandates stay in place even after Almost every state in the country lifted theirs. Putting our kids farther behind in phonics, in reading, let alone the, the emotional drag of wearing a mask when they know in their spirit it's not right. She took no action on school choice. No action on the Marxist tools that are in our face, the critical race theory. The, the silly common core. This stuff is a failing story. It doesn't work. Done nothing. And no action to stop the radical LGBTQ plus agenda. Now, I have a question. 
How many of you folks know what the plus is? Because I do not. It's at the end. Anybody have an idea? I'm glad you don't. That's a good sign. <laughs> good. I don't, I don't know either, and I'm not going to look it up. But it's, This agenda, she pushed it forward. She signed off on a $2 million state funding for the first LBGTQ+, the first transgender public school in the South, right here in Birmingham. They call it the Magic City School. And they declare themselves as LBGTQ affirming. To affirm means to confirm that something is true. This is not true. This is a lie. This is in direct conflict and in opposition to the character and the nature of God. And we're not going to tolerate it in this state. That's inexcusable. I think that is beyond the pale. I think allowing attacks on educators, on trans folks, on gay folks, on... I mean, there's there's an attack on on you know critical race theory, which is which is generally speaking a, a veiled attack on black folks and their history and the right for people to teach that history. I mean, there was one critical race theory bill in Texas that would have banned the teaching of Martin Luther King Jr. his his writings. Um, that's just. And we've said we understand the endorsement, and, and there's, no, there's no condemnation from us about the endorsement. We understand the position that they're in, and we understand the necessity of getting these folks back to work. But you have to do that in a way that maintains your integrity and maintains your commitment to the working people of Alabama. And allowing him to, from a union hall, with union members behind him clapping like seals about how being gay is contrary to God's law and we won't allow it in Alabama. I mean, how I, I know for a fact that there are gay folks and trans folks who have donated, who have been on charity streams for them who have organized fundraisers for them who have been very big supporters there are socialists who have done that there are organized marxists who have helped these people and not with not with the condition that not with any condition and certainly not with a condition condition that these folks agree with them on everything but i think that solidarity is fundamental. Solidarity is fundamental. Solidarity to your sisters and brothers on the job is, is fundamental. You can't not have solidarity with working Alabamians, especially working Alabamians that have supported you. And I mean, seeing representatives... 
I mean, people who should people who should know better. Clapping. It's it. I just I can't. I can't get. I mean, it's it's difficult for me to even know what to say because I would never allow in my union hall attacks on. I mean, certainly attacks on gay folks, attacks on coal miners, attacks on as individuals. Like it is contrary. Like I couldn't imagine myself saying. It is contrary to God's law to, you know, to, to, to vote Republican and we're not going to allow this in Alabama. And, and, you know, by proxy, you're not going to be welcome in our union and our union hall and at our events. I mean, I would never say that. I mean, you have to be, there has to be some amount of diplomacy and, and solidarity that you extend to other people and to people that have supported you and, and to people that, I mean, I, it's just, it's so, so disappointing. Yeah. And, and I, I understand the hurt that you're feeling um, because all of those people that Mr. James was bashing, the educators, the quote-unquote Marxist, which, believe me, uh, would apply to any number of people, not just, uh, you know, actual Marxists. Um, and, of course... LGBT folks, all of them being bashed by this candidate. These communities have have come out for the miners. They have come out to support the miners during this strike. My guess is that if you added it up, all the gays and lesbians, all the socialists and other, uh, you know, leftist radicals, to use their kind of phrasing, if you add it up, Everything that we've put together, my guess is that about six figures worth of contributions to the strike fund have come from those kinds of people. Mm-hmm. The people who Tim James believes are an affront to God and not welcome in this state. Yeah. Um, and to me, when you, when you are in a union, when you are in the labor movement, uh, your, your focus should be on addition, not subtraction. It should be adding to our movement, respecting all human beings as worthy of dignity and, and value, uh, regardless of your particular you know, religious beliefs, regardless of your particular orientation. Uh, the idea that we should associate the labor movement with such exclusion mm-hmm. and with such bigotry and backwardsness. Yeah. Uh, it's it's it is disturbing. So and and they've been and and folks in those groups have been supporting it since day one. Since day one, thirteen not months sh- ago, not showing up in right. the last six weeks of a pl- political campaign right. to say some good words that contradict everything his own daddy did while he was in office. Right, because we had multiple strikes while. Bob James was in office. We've we we know about what happened with those paper mill workers in Cortland. We know about the teachers in Walker County. We know how his father responded when mm-hmm. working class Alabamians were out on strike. 
Yeah. So it's easy. You know, talk is cheap, but history is valuable. And even the talk is limited to only when he is asked about it. Right. He, spent, you, he, you, had, a, he you, had a stump speech at a union hall, and we played that bit that we played at the beginning. That, that was, it. was it. That was all. That was the extent of his 25 minute speech was three minutes. Three minutes on the strike in their union hall. The rest of it was the second thing that I just played. The rest of it was that played over and over for 20 minutes. That was the rest of his 25-minute speech was just a a bog-standard, reactionary, (coughs) anti-worker, Republican stump speech. That was it. And, And like Adam said, he's coming in here parachuting in you know, I mean, Alabama workers used to hate carpetbaggers. Um, you know, parachuting in at the last minute, trying to get their endorsement, and 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 even then, barely paying attention to them, barely talking about them, barely uh, platforming the issues that they're having, and only doing so when it's totally necessary. He doesn't bring this up in his interviews on conservative talk radio. He doesn't bring it up in his interviews or in his in his statements. He doesn't he never brings this up if he's not asked or if he's not at the union hall whereas socialists, gay folks, trans folks, all educators have been on the picket line with them since day 1, have been raising money with them since day 1, has been have been supporting them from day one. Union members across the country supporting them from day one. Gay union members, day one. How many, I would even just, I would be interested in tallying up the number of the the, the donations that they received just from LGBT, LGBT folks and comparing that to the donations that they got from Republicans. Yeah. Uh, oh, absolutely. That, that would be a number I would be interested in seeing. I would be interested in seeing how many gay folks have been to their union halls, have been to their events, have been to their picket lines, and how many Republicans have that are not actually members of the union or right. or family of them. Obviously, there are members of the union and their family that are Republicans. But people that are doing it as a part of their identity, right. as a Just part as of their activism in the citizen. world. Right. Yeah. How many just How many? random Republicans right. found it in their heart to donate money to this cause or to show up physically for this cause? Uh, you know, And there aren't that many LGBT folks, but I would be willing to bet a significant amount of money that more LGBTQ plus folks, which, uh, which they laughed at. Everybody in that union hall laughed with Tim James at that group of folks. I would be willing to bet a significant amount of money that more of those folks who are who, who their primary their their primary uh, uh, movement in the world as an activist is from kind of d- derivative of their LGBT identity have have randomly come across the strike and donated and supported than the same can be said for Republicans who, who you know, they're a Republican activist and they found this and, and they donated to it and shared it and, and all this stuff. I genuinely think that is the case. I agree with you. I've seen Marxists, both actual Marxists and just 
people that they would label as Marxist, uh, very, very adamant about supporting the strike yes. and supporting the miners. I haven't seen many Church of Christ preachers and Southern Baptist yeah. church, uh, uh, preachers out here rallying their flock Right. To give money or doing live streams on YouTube or, or showing up to their to rallies. Their email list. How many emails has the Alabama Republican Party sent to donate to the fund? How many emails has Tim James sent to donate to the strike fund? How much money has Tim James donated to the strike fund? Uh, has he even? Yeah. I would actually be willing to bet he hasn't donated anything to the strike fund. I bet you he's got more money to get than millionaire. We yeah, he's got more money in his bank account than I do. I. I I can swear to you today. <laughs> and, and and you've donated more to the strike fund than Tim James has. I bet he has. I bet so. I bet so. And I mean it's just so like And you know, something that's that's happening here and, and something Jeb commented that sort of reminded me of this. It's something I've been wanting to talk about for a while, but we are in the midst of a red scare. Uh in this country, we've had multiple red scares. My my argument as, as a student of history would be that it's never really gone away. It's just been so successful uh, that it's faded. But we are the red scare never went away. And I think we're in a period now where we're experiencing that all over again, uh, where we're seeing actual radicals and people who aren't radicals but are being labeled as such being targeted in in Alabama and across this country and there is a there is a movement here to suppress speech to censor classrooms to divide the masses against one another and to target minorities such as gay folks and trans folks to target those who are on the left, it's, uh, you know, I, I truly, I truly believe that we are experiencing that. We are in the midst of a modern red scare. And this rhetoric that's being pushed by people like Tim James is, is part of that. And if you know anything about the red scares that we've experienced, you know, throughout the 20th century, it's a sad Sad chapter in our history of of, of labor, uh, because unfortunately there were those in the labor movement, uh, particularly those in leadership of these institutions, uh, that went all in on the Red Scare. And that, you know, if, if we want to talk about why is the labor movement not as strong as it used to be, well, that's a big part of it, because its most militant members, its most de- dedicated members um, – were purged from membership yep. in union after union. Not Certainly not all, but in too many. And the labor movement, when it was facing its, its toughest challenges, you know, with the ascendance of neoliberalism and Reaganism, with the growth of globalization and outsourcing, when they needed to be stronger than ever, they had already purged from their ranks those considered to be too radical, those who were too gay, who were too red. Yeah. It's, you know, so, so when I listen to this kind of shit, it really does, it, it just, it brings that up for me. Um, yeah. 
It's 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 a problem. Yeah, it's a big problem. I, and I I mean, you know, and and there have uh, and I, you know, and obviously so because this has happened, you know, I mean, I think that people can imagine that, you know, there are other issues, but I have I have <laughs> I bit my tongue quite a lot. Um, <clears throat> I bit my tongue quite a lot, and. Uh, you know, so I'm not go. I don't. I feel. I I feel like it's it's kind of necessary to put it out there for the record because this is something that they've done in public. This is something that they've done in the light of day. This isn't something that's happened on an individual level or something that that they didn't put out there as a union. This is something that they have they have attached the names of their union to, and they put out statements about, and they have not made a statement about the about the hate that they allowed in their union hall. And I think it's incumbent on union members in Alabama to say to gay workers, to say to trans workers, to say to teachers who are union members, to say to black folks, to say to people who want to teach history that this is not okay the labor movement is still there for you. I am still there for you. I will advocate for you. And you have a place in the movement. You have a place in the movement. You have a place in your union. Don't give it up because of folks like this. Yeah. This is about the working class. And, and there are tensions in the working class. There are tensions in the working class. There are differences among us. That's true. Um, but we can't allow ourselves to be divided in that way. Um, the working class is all of us who have to sell our labor for a living. It's not just those who are white, male, Christian workers, which I know is the posturing we're getting from the right wing. And the more, you know, that's a trap. It's a trap that's going to further weaken our movement and produce more hate and bigotry. Yeah. And, you know, that doesn't change the righteousness of this cause of these no. miners who are on strike fighting back against corporate greed, fighting for dignity in their lives and the lives of their families. That's a righteous cause, and it, it, and it will continue to be, and we will continue to support that. Uh, because it's not it's not about the PAC fund. It's not mm-hmm. about uh, officers. It's not about even the institution itself. It's about the workers right. and their struggle, and we will continue to support that struggle. Yeah. We've got one more story. We wanted to talk about Starbucks, which is a little bit more fun. Um, Star- Starbucks bosses <laughs> continue to cope and... Seethe. Let's put this. Up. It is. It is pretty funny to see. It is pretty funny to see there's, their. Um... Yeah, there's there's some stuff that's very serious and some stuff that's that's very funny. So we'll start off with this thing that's very serious. Yesterday, this is the ULP graphic. Yesterday, Starbucks announced pay increases, but said it was obligated to withhold them from unionized workers 
which is a lie. Labor law experts say, they said to the New York Times, that that is not true and that it's likely against the law to withhold. They would have to at least offer this package to the union. Um, and that's illegal. It's clearly illegal. The law says you cannot issue, you cannot punish for unionizing and you cannot reward for not unionizing. And so giving benefits to stores that are not unionizing is a reward for not unionizing. So what is, you know, usually usually people have something that they point to. Usually they don't just make things totally out of whole cloth. So what is it that Starbucks is referring to when they say, oh, we're not allowed to withhold, or we're not allowed to offer you these benefits? We're not allowed to offer you these benefits. That's crazy. Um, you know, I hate it, but that's the way the law works in this country. Why are they saying that? They're saying that because once you've been unionized, the the employer cannot unilaterally change the conditions of employment. They're not allowed to unilaterally change the conditions of employment. Um, they have to bargain with the union and come to an agreement on that, or or come to an impasse and implement it over over their wishes. But but you know there has to be bargaining over it. And so what they're saying is that we can't unilaterally implement these benefits, which is true. They can't unilaterally implement the benefits, but they can. And legally have to, as these, as the labor law experts told Noam Scheiber for the New York Times, they legally have to offer these benefits to the union workers for them to sign off on. And like a memorandum of understanding or like a shortened contract or something like that, they have to do that. Because otherwise it's rewarding the workers who do not unionize and punishing the workers who do not or, or who do unionize. Clearly, clearly illegal. But that's what they're doing because because that's what they want to do. They want to reward people for not unionizing and punish people for unionizing. That's expressly what they want to do. And so uh, that's so that's a very, very bad thing that is happening right now. But, uh, you know, and that's happening despite the fact they're saying that they can't offer the benefits unilaterally, even though they are changing the conditions of employment unilaterally um, right. in negative ways by cutting hours, um, by refusing to schedule people, things like that. And they Taking keep people firing. off their health care. They keep firing organizers. Yes. Over and over again. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, they're, they're talking out of like three sides of their mouth here. Um, but some good news is that, uh, you know, Starbucks workers met with Amazon workers uh, with President Biden last week. They had a conference and, and you know, talked to the president. Uh, and, and so that that convey that confers on them like a certain sense of legitimacy that is very good. And Starbucks um, was very upset about that. <laughs> they were uh they were very upset about that. They say they said in a letter to the president um, that wah, wah. yeah they just they just why, cried. Why are you so mean? <laughs> yeah, why are you so mean? They were upset that uh, they they were deeply concerned that Starbucks was not invited to the meeting um, while union representatives were. <laughs> and they say that they have a, dr a drastically more positive vision for our partners and our company than Workers United, which is just silly. Um, and they also called it heartbreaking. Um, oh, Jesus. Yeah. It, it's, it, it's, uh, it's great. We love it. Um, <laughs> it's well, from now on, I think we need to write a letter every time uh, these capitalists get their invitations to Congress and the White House. We need our own letter 
Why, why, why didn't you invite me? Right, right, right. Um, and the guy who wrote that, and I, and I was looking for, and, and it's a bit, it's a bit of a stretch to include this clip because it's not relevant. But the guy who wrote that letter is also responsible for this absolutely glorious clip. I've been looking for a way to shoehorn this in, and I haven't really found it until I realized that he was the one who wrote this letter. And it's just like, these are the type of people that are trying to withhold basic constitutional rights from these workers, keep them down, keep them being paid less, keep them with no power in the workplace. These are the type of people that are doing that, that think that they're so much better than us. Play that clip, Adam. Would this be the clip labeled dumbass? Oh, yeah. That's the clip labeled dumbass. <laughs> uh, you know, didn't see it in the notes, but uh, <laughs> my expert powers of deduction here. <laughs> All right. Coming right up. I know a bit about both the national labor, the national, um, the national NRL, NRLA, the national labor's, uh, the National Relations Labor Act. I also know a bit about the National Labor Review Board. There you go. I mean, he knows a few things about. <laughs> he knows a few things about the National Labor Review Board and the National oh. Labor Act Review Act Labor. Yeah, I mean, National. I hate, I hate to hate, I hate to hate on somebody who you know gets tongue tied because Lord knows I, I can sound pretty incoherent. Those of you who are regular listeners probably know that, but. Uh, yeah, I wish I had that man's salary, though, because I am also man. capable of standing up there and making a fool of myself. Yeah. Whew. That's pretty crazy. Um, so, you know, that was that was that was pretty that was a pretty fun clip. Um, let's let's go to some more coping and seething uh, from Howie. Let's play that one. Oh, goodness. So when you love something so much, you almost want to do anything to defend it, to preserve it, to enhance it like you would for your, your family. And for so many people at Starbucks, this has become their family and how personal it is. And it is very personal, especially when you have an adversary that's threatening the very essence of what you believe to be true. There you go. So that's how he views his, his own workers, our partners, I should say, partners. Uh, because that's the adversary here. He is correct. There is an adversarial relationship. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and comments such as this really just make it clear and hammers at home that there is an adversarial relationship. Yeah. He could easily recognize all of these unions. They don't have to go through these uh, extensive elections and all the BS that comes with it. He has the authority now that he's back as CEO of Starbucks, he has that authority. He could easily put out the memo. You know what, guys? You want a union? We'll recognize you mm-hmm. so that we can get started on negotiations and we don't and, have to go through all like this. Partners. Right. How about treat them like partners? Yeah. If I'm a partner with someone, I respect their wishes and desires. Right. Someone who's my partner, if they decide they want to join an organization or if they want to do something different, Okay, you're my partner. I'm I'm going to recognize right. that. Let's talk about that and work through it. So, you know, I I do love though when when companies such as Starbucks uh, and guys like this, when their mask comes off, and all of the lofty you know liberal sounding rhetoric that they love to champion, 
All it takes is a good old-fashioned labor battle, a labor struggle for them to really take the mask off and, and reveal who they are and what they're about. Yeah, it's worth remembering every time that he comes up in the news that he was Hillary Clinton's Department of Labor pick. This was the guy that Hillary Clinton wanted heading up the Department of Labor. So, yeah, we've got her running mate, Tim Kaine, out here <laughs> defending Amazon. Her uh, potential DOL yeah. appointee is literally now probably uh, you know, up there with Jeff Bezos in terms yeah. of the most famous union buster in the world. Yeah. Um, and... Wow, we have do we are we still wondering why the Clinton campaign floundered with working class people? Um, yeah. um, it's pretty pretty sad. And let's play that clip of a Starbucks worker um, who like these are the people that he is saying are his adversary, which is I mean true in in a certain class struggle sense, but um, he. In a dystopian Orwellian, like genuinely actually Orwellian way, he calls them partners. Um, and that's the image that he wants to project. But when they start trying to actually take some control, he calls them his adversary. These are the type of people that he is, he is actually demonizing. I just wish that I could take Howard Schultz and him enjoying his second yacht or whatever he's doing. I wish that I could take him and we could switch places for just a moment. When I was laying on the floor of my apartment, so chemo sick that I could not move, crying and throwing up with an eviction notice on my door, trying to force myself to work a nine hour Starbucks shift because otherwise I was going to lose not only my healthcare, but my place to live and any food that I had. When all I had was a pack of ramen in my cabinets, I just wish that we could switch places just so he could experience that fear and that helplessness where you physically are unable to do anything and yet you have to drag yourself into work anyway because if you don't what else is going to happen to you yeah those are the people he's he's demonizing and considering to be his adversaries people who just want to go to work, do a good job, get paid well, treated well, and live with dignity. Yeah. And the and these are the people that and this was just this was just uh, uh reported out yesterday that um that star that they have committed two over 200 violations of the National Labor Relations Act wow. just in Buffalo Wow! to prevent from having a union. The regional director of the National Labor Relations Board in Buffalo, New York, issued a complaint Friday accusing Starbucks of 29 unfair labor practice charges that included over 200 violations of the National Labor Relations Act. The complaint stems from claims made by Starbucks Workers United against the company in Buffalo. Only in Buffalo, 200 violations of the National Labor Relations Act. How are there even 200 pieces of the like? I mean, I don't even know how you do that, but right. Starbucks did it. Um, yeah, insane, absolutely insane. Uh, and that's that's going to be it for us, though, Adam. Unless you had anything else, I didn't. I did want to plug again. Uh, we were kind of running out of time on the radio, but there there are some local actions happening in terms of uh, this Supreme Court decision 
that were that's pending to revoke Roe versus Wade and to attack a woman's right to bodily autonomy. So let me let me pull that back up because I know there are folks who are probably wondering where's where's the next demonstration where you know where they should go. Uh, so I was told that there is a bans off our bodies fight for human rights rally in March on May twenty first. That's a Saturday at one o'clock at Big Spring Park here in Huntsville. Uh, looks like it's going to be happening from one to four p.m. And there's a fundraiser for the Yellowhammer Fund. And if you are wondering, you know, how can you support women, how you can support the right to choose, Yellowhammer Fund seems like an organization that, you know, would be worthy of your support. If you have a few extra bucks, chip chip it their way. I know the Powerhouse down in Montgomery has long, long done great work uh, along these lines. so I did want to throw that out there. Uh, but otherwise, that's about all I have. Uh, you know, I want to wish a happy Mother's Day to, to everyone, um, especially to all of you who are mothers. And um, uh, my hat's off to you. Um, yeah. I'm a father myself and uh, just really appreciate everything that uh, our mothers do for us and uh, really Hate that you are not appreciated enough by our society and our political economy uh, with the types of treatment that you truly deserve. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's it. If you'd like to help us stay on the air, you can buy our new hat, make a one-time or recurring donation on our website, tvlr.fm. Share and follow online, on yes. social media, please, stuff like please, that. Please do um, share. And, and yep. uh, if you're not already subscribed on the various apps – that's the easy way to support us. Uh, if you don't mind sharing our stuff on your social media feeds, Facebook, Twitter, whatever it may be, uh, yeah, yep. share out our stuff. Leave uh, us a voicemail. Bad boss stories. Uh, organizing wins. Organizing losses. Ask us a question. 844-899-TVLR. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller, and we will see you next week. <laughs>